Listen, you smell something? Human emotions are materializing in the form of a viscous psychoreactive plasm with explosive supernormal potential. What a discovery, a psychoreactive substance. Do you know what this equipment is used for? Boggle or Super Mario Brothers? We'll have fun! Yeah! They're still doing a really quite good work there. My friend, don't be a jerk. We've got no choice. Call a Ghostbuster. Super Jackpot! Welcome to Extraplasm Podcast. It's the only podcast on the internet that believes that neither tricking nor treating are mutually exclusive, so why not permute and do both? I'm your host, Jim Maritato, aka Vink Maniac, from the internet. Uh, you can usually find me on Instagram, Twitter, and sometimes on Ghostbusters Spirits Unleashed. And I'm excited to talk with you all this week after a week off, uh, because life got a little bit crazy and a little bit busy, and it was difficult to try to run a podcast at the same time as several other things that came up that week. And one of the key challenges that I will say uh, about running this podcast is that I do it alone, which means that I have to sometimes figure out how to create a podcast from nothing when we don't have somebody to interview uh, or when there's not an event going on. Or in the case when uh, lots of events are going on in my life, it becomes difficult to put that together. I've been joking that I need a Melnitz in my life, uh, not because I you know, need to find someone with lucky coin to date. I already have someone in my life who I'm very lucky to have, uh, but I definitely need somebody to help answer my calls uh, and to help put things together in my life because it was a very, very busy week. So I apologize that we had a missed episode or rather, I'm not even calling it a missed episode as much as a delayed episode, but I do want to wish you a belated happy Halloween uh, because I did not have an opportunity to say that to you before the we missed it uh, to get or I missed it. So um, happy Halloween. If you were out there during the busy season of Halloween with your Ghostbusters franchise or just with your family uh, doing the whole Ghostbusting shtick, I hope you had a fantastic time. I hope you had a fantastic holiday. I know it's one that for many of us, is something we wait around for for each year because it's kind of where the busy season of ghost busting <laughs> happens, either because things are haunted or not, uh, but in large part because there's a lot of events, a lot of trunk or treats, and a lot of opportunities to connect with people around this time of year. So if you've had that chance, I hope you had an awesome Halloween season. Uh, now, get ready for Christmas because it's coming. Uh, today, we are going to talk a bit about something haunted, uh, and it's going to be the history of a Ghostbusters firehouse. Not necessarily the one that everybody thinks of, though, because we're going to talk this week about the Los Angeles firehouse, where the interior of Ghostbusters was filmed. And so, a deep dive is coming at you today, as opposed to an interview with a guest, uh, about the history of the Ghostbusters firehouse and what its current state is. And part of what's driving that is that we received contributions uh, from a member of the Ghostbusters fandom that are outstanding. And you can find them on our Instagram and Twitter account uh, this week because I've posted them. But Sergio Nava, who's a newer member of the Los Angeles Ghostbusters and who you can find on Instagram at GB underscore Nava, was awesome enough to share a set of photographs that he has uh, that he got about two weeks ago when visiting the inside of Engine 23 in Los Angeles. Uh, and so this kind of kicked off a discussion about putting together an episode about Engine 23. And to be realistic with you, part of the reason why the episode took so long to come out is because Engine 23's history is so complicated and has so much that's gone on in it. So uh, I'm excited to share a lot of that with you because for me, talking about Engine 23 and researching it has been a bit of a passion project for a long time. And I've wanted to give it or do it justice. So I hope that 
though we had to take some time to put the episode together, you'll enjoy uh, what you'll find after the headlines discussion this week. And if nothing else, you should definitely go and look at those photos because Sergio shared photos of things like the second and third floor, which we have not seen in decades because it wasn't stable to go up there. The building was facing real structural problems. And so to go up to the second or third floor was kind of a non-starter. And so at this point, the building seems to have been seismically stabilized for the most part. And uh, they were able to go and visit the building and see inside of it. So without question, not that I want you to like run away from this podcast and turn it off, but you should definitely take a look at these photos if you're a Ghostbusters fan, because uh, although the interior is sort of torn up and you're going to find that a lot of the aesthetics are missing because they're going to they're renovating the building and they needed to get to all of the structural elements underneath the aesthetics and they have to preserve the aesthetics because that's part of what gives it its cultural value uh, that they, you get to see sort of the the building and what it's made of, what it looks like and sort of what exists underneath the skin of the Ghostbusters firehouse that we all know. So. I encourage you, go check out Extraplasm on Instagram, Extraplasm on Twitter, uh, and see those photos. And it would be great to have a discussion about those. If you have questions, you have comments, you have ideas, etc., feel free to hit me up at Extraplasm on Instagram or Twitter or via Gmail at extraplasmpodcast at gmail.com. And one final sort of quick programming note. I do want to say a few people reached out uh, during my little week respite here <laughs> and said just to make sure I was okay when they didn't get a podcast. They were like, is everything all right? Uh, and at one point I made a post saying, everything's fine. I haven't ghosted everybody. That would be very off brand for a guy who's running a ghost busting podcast. Uh, but if you reached out and sort of expressed, hey, I really appreciate your podcast or hey, I hope everything's going okay this week. I appreciate you um, because I want to say that uh, life is sometimes very overwhelming and doing this podcast and getting to episode 10, which is where we're at this week, uh, has been a joy to connect with people. And I really felt like I had let a lot of people down uh, last week when I couldn't get this thing out and felt very badly about it. So if you were one of the people who reached out and was kind because you were like, hey, is everything all right? Um, thank you for being an awesome community member and making me feel included and welcomed uh, in your life. <laughs> so, um, and I'm glad that you're, you all are out there listening for those of you who have gotten into the podcast. So uh, enough about me babbling about my life and complications and difficulties. Let's talk instead about some news. We're going to get into some Ghostbusters headlines. Still making headlines all across the country. The Ghostbusters are at it again. Today, the entire eastern seaboard is alive with talk of incidents of paranormal activity. On in topic today, ghosts and ghostbusting. The extra plasm. Read all about it. Ghostbusters headlines coming at you. There's a lot to talk about in Ghostbusters headlines, especially when you don't have an episode for a week and it's Halloween season and all of a sudden all kinds of Ghostbusters media is being released all at once. And so we're going to try and compartmentalize a little bit of Ghostbusters announcements that have happened over the last two weeks because uh, it's quite a bit. And I find that kind of fascinating and funny because it was two weeks prior that I was recording this segment and going, wow, there's not a lot to talk about. This is going to be really short. So um, it ebbs and it flows, as they say. That's how the slime river goes. Uh, but 
We're going to start out talking a bit about video games and getting some Ghostbusters Spirits Unleashed news uh, up front and sort of out of the way. And I don't mean out of the way in a negative way as much as just there's a lot of it. So Ghostbusters Spirits Unleashed has released, if you don't know this already. Uh, Unfortunately, there has been a pushback on the collector's editions for folks who were getting those for PlayStation or Xbox. And the publisher has now come out and said that they are doing a second production run of them because they uh, underestimated how popular the Tobin Spirit Guide edition of the game would be that came in a Tobin Spirit Guide box. Uh, So if you haven't gotten your copy yet, you may be waiting a little while longer to get it. I'm hoping you'll get it soon. For those people who have gotten the traditional copy or went out and got the uh, digital download, we've all been playing the game and interacting with it. It's a fantastic game and a lot of fun. It definitely has some glitches and bugs and things that they are working on fixing. Uh, and so one of the key things to know is that a bug fix patch did come out in the last couple of weeks uh, that resolves some of the issues. One of the features of that bug patch is actually a new thing that they've added, which is a friend code system uh, or a party code system. So typically when you play any of these kinds of online games, you need to go into a, a launcher like Epic Games, or if you're on a PS4 or Xbox, you have um, some sort of, you know, like Xbox Live or PlayStation Network where you have a profile and then you can add friends, etc. And to be kind of realistic, it's a little bit cumbersome to do this uh, with Ghostbusters Spirits Unleashed because as much as I love the game and I appreciate the free copy that Ilphonic uh, provided to the podcast so we could review it, uh, I, I find that the ability to set up that friendship thing doesn't necessarily work all that well when you have people who are on a PlayStation and who also need to then go into their Epic games to try and confirm requests from multiple platforms and link things. Uh, And the cool thing about the party code system they've set up, especially for folks who want to run online events, is that you give a code to all your participants, regardless of whether or not you are established friends within some sort of social network that's tied to gaming. And then you can join each other's games easily. So to me, this is a big boon. I think that it means that you can start to run events and say, hey, here's what the code is to 10 people or or five people who are going to come and join your game and not have to worry about, do you all have uh, a linked relationship already and mutual friendships that are shared such that you pass a series of uh, you know privacy credentials to all play together and if not then somebody gets booted out of the game so uh, if you're a Ghostbuster Spirits Unleashed player and you haven't tried out the party code thing it actually works pretty well uh, and lets you join games or participate in games regardless of your friendship uh, regardless of your friendship uh, <laughs> you don't have to have friends it's okay just join games um, it's kind of true you can go play with the bots uh, but the point is that this code system helps to make things a lot easier for joining games if you don't have uh, social connections and you're not like I mean I'll be honest personally I'm not a big gamer so I don't have like you know a, a steam account that then has four, 40 friends in it or something to go join with uh, so same thing with epic games my Epic Games account now has like 20 friends and they're all because they're Ghostbusters fans I know who are playing Spirits Unleashed uh, and who we're joining each other's games. So uh, know that that new feature is out there. It works pretty well. Um, There's been some bug fixes as well within Spirits Unleashed and they're 
are definitely some glitches still to work out. Just a piece of advice if you're playing this game and you go to the brewery level, don't go in the blue buckets if you're a ghost. Uh, if you do, you will become uncatchable and everyone will be really annoyed and you won't be able to possess or do anything. You'll just become non-corporeal and fly around the room. And it happens almost every time you jump in a blue bucket in the brewery level. So if anybody from out there, from Elphonic is listening, you gotta get rid of the blue buckets. There's not even a big code fix. Just go in the level and delete this asset. We don't need it. <laughs> it's not helping anyone uh, anyway. But the uh, th some other news about Ghostbusters Spirits Unleashed to know is that Ilphonic has announced that they intend to put out downloadable content uh, and provide additional support in terms of content going forward, which I'm very excited about. Um, and if you hadn't seen it already, they did in fact do a Holly Halloween promotion where they put jack-o'-lanterns and Halloween decorations all over the inside of your firehouse and raise a cult books, uh, which was very cool and very cute. The content will disappear from the uh, firehouses in the game by the 8th of November. So presumably we'll probably get some Halloween deck or holiday, not Halloween, but holiday decorations to follow. I would imagine for the winter season, uh, because if you're going to do this and do it for Halloween, you've now established that you have to do it at all other points. <laughs> so I guess we'll see what, uh, kinds of costumes and things we're going to see because there were also like, uh, masks and different things that you could put on your player for Halloween season. So I think it's pretty cool. This is a very neat thing to be able to kind of fire up Ghostbuster spirits unleashed and walk into your virtual firehouse and see it decorated for a holiday um it definitely warms your heart a little bit i have to say it's, it's silly but it's kind of cool our last piece of ghostbusters spirits unleashed related news for this week uh is the announcement of gbsul also known as ghostbusters spirits unleashed league uh, apparently there is going to be an unofficial fan created uh league for Official gameplay is an organized eSport league for Ghostbusters Spirits Unleashed. Uh, Ghostbusters News reports that uh, it's aiming to crown the best players in the world with a total of 15 teams already signed up to compete. Uh, apparently, you can sign up to play either as Busters or as a Ghost. And there are some interesting team names that they've got out there. Some of you may be listening. Slay Puffed, Spectorum, and uh, Team Ectogasm are apparently teams that are signing up for this. Uh, I will admit, as a person who's played too much Spirits Unleashed and made it to level 100 and has kind of got a reputation at this point for being a nasty ghost, um, I was tempted to uh, look at this and to see how I would become part of a professional league of people who were e-gamers who did this. And then I decided that if I do that, you all might never get another podcast episode again. So um, I'm probably not going to do that <laughs> because I may not ever get anything done again. But if you're interested, you can find out more about uh, the ghost Buster Spirits Unleashed eSports League at gbsul.leaguerepublic.com uh, and check out the options there to sort of join up or try and figure out who's the most competitively successful uh, person. Uh, there's apparently a one a week one competition that's already underway and at part of the launch. So um, knowing that, it means I'm probably going to find myself there later and then wonder why I tempted myself. <laughs> but um, if you haven't run into me yet on Spirits Unleashed, um, just know that I will, in fact, slime you if I have the opportunity and I will enjoy it. That sounds totally wrong. Please don't cut it out of context and use it in something later. I do not need to be sampled as an extraplasm hip hop song. Uh, okay, so moving out of discussing Spirits Unleashed, let's talk about one other video game real quick, which is that uh, the MetaQuest 
game that has been announced that the Ghostbusters VR now has a name and has been given a, a, an official title. Uh, the name of the game is apparently Ghostbusters Rise of the Ghost Lord, which to me sounds like the title of some sort of like Scooby-Doo crossover, even though it's not. Uh, but Rise of the Ghost Lord is going to be the title of the VR game that's coming uh, for MetaQuest 2 systems, uh, and I believe also PlayStation VR, if I'm not incorrect about that. Uh, and that is going to be a different experience than the video game, obviously, because it's going to be a VR experience that you're playing around in. The premise of it is that you're part of a Ghostbusters franchise that's operating in San Francisco uh, with some sort of new villain who pops up called the Ghost Lord that you need to bust with your franchise. Uh, so look for that. It's still coming your way um, in the future. It's a pretty different experience, I think, than, you know, something like we're sitting down and pointing and shooting. You've got to get up and move around. Uh, for those of you who may have played the Ghostbusters VR experience that happened at the Void locations in different places around the U.S. and I believe in the U.K., uh, this seems like it kind of maybe along those lines a little bit. I have to admit that I don't have a VR setup in my house. I'm probably not going to have one in the future. Uh, so this seems kind of like the home version of that where you'll be able to put on the meta quest equipment and use it to run around in your house and do some busting with other people uh, and play online. And keep in mind that still coming is the hollow gate, uh, which is really probably more like the void where hollow gate was, is a entertainment uh, setup for different entertainment centers. So uh, within like the next, you know, six months, you're really talking about like three different video game experiences that are going to exist for Ghostbusters. Uh, you know, one of them being a, a traditional console game and PC game that is an asymmetric shooter. Uh, one of them being this VR experience that's going to happen on meta quest. And one of them being uh, this face to, or rather this location-based experience. So um, there's a lot of opportunity for Ghostbusters stories to happen there. And I think that's so cool because, you know, we tend to think about when's the next Ghostbusters movie coming or the next cartoon, but uh, anybody who knows that Ghostbusters 2 is not canon and that the video game is canon will tell you that video games matter. And if you get that joke, then you're probably a fan of Yes Have Some Podcast. And if you don't get that joke, don't get upset. I don't really think that Ghostbusters 2 is not canon, but Certain Canadians do. Uh, <laughs> leaving that aside, let's talk about something a little bit different than uh, than video games for a few minutes. I am really excited to talk for a few moments about Starlight Children's Foundation uh, and the partnership that they're making with Sony because Starlight is going to be looking to create Ghostbusters hospital gowns for kids who are in the hospital. Now, if Starlight sounds familiar to you, you may recall that way back in like episode three of this podcast, uh, we were joined by Matt Zunick from the Los Angeles Ghostbusters, and the LA Ghostbusters have been partnered with Starlight Foundation for the last year uh, as their primary fund fundraising partner. And the long and short of what's going on is that Ghostbusters is being 
put in the hands of kids in hospitals, hopefully, uh, as a result of a partnership between Starlight and Sony, where they're designing hospital gowns for kids who are in the hospital for long periods of time. And if you don't know what Starlight does, they provide like play and essentially wellness through play for kids inside hospitals. They create gaming consoles and rigs on carts and things for kids. They uh, have hospital gowns currently for like Star Wars and other stuff. And so one of the things they try to do is give the kids the ability to choose something they find heroic to wear and to feel good while they're in the hospital getting care for often really, you know, dire situations. We're not talking about kids who go to the hospital for like two days. We're talking about kids who end up in the hospital for a while because they have some sort of serious problem going on. Uh, And so the partnership that's coming out between Starlight and Sony is essentially that Starlight is going to create these gowns that look like flight suits uh, with proton packs on the back of them for kids to wear as opposed to a regular traditional uh, hospital gown. And what's awesome about this is that they're engaged in a fundraiser where the goal would be to supply hospitals around the country with this Ghostbusters themed gowns. Now, to be clear, when Matt Zunick was on the show, I had the opportunity to talk with him about this a little bit before they kind of concretized it. And I want to say that, like, I know that the LA Ghostbusters had a pretty significant uh, job in sort of setting up and bringing Starlight and Sony together because Starlight has been their partner. Uh, I know that Ghostbusters News has a story about Sony and Starlight together doing this, which is fantastic, but I wanted to give a big shout out to the LA boys uh, and women because the reality is that that's probably where this all begins as a seed because they've been doing such great work with Starlight. The target goal they're hoping to reach is $40,000 essentially to provide the materials, the funding to, to make these gowns. And the, opportunity is there for lots of different fan franchises to participate in this. It is going to be essentially a nationwide opportunity for franchises to generate fundraising and contribute and to help put hospital uh, hospital gowns into communities around the country, right? So essentially, uh, the way to think about this is that by doing this work, if you are doing your downtime from, say, being after Halloween and you want to do an a fundraiser that's going to contribute electronically, you can do that and help to put hospital gowns that are Ghostbusters themed into the hospital in your community, which to me is very cool. It's something where a lot of the time, I think, you know, a lot of our Ghostbusters fundraising and engagement and charity is local. Uh, and this is an opportunity to go national while having a local benefit. And so, uh, so far, the LA Ghostbusters, Windy City Ghostbusters, Arizona Ghostbusters, and Buffalo Ghostbusters all have generated ways to uh, contribute and fundraising opportunities. Uh, it's my understanding that Hook and Ladder 8 provided money so far to uh, help to fund this. One thing I should say that's really cool about what Starlight's doing here is that they've actually set up a web page that you can go to uh, on donate.starlight.org uh, where you can either donate revenue or donate money to uh, contribute to this effort, or you can actually start up a fundraising effort for your franchise or with a team of people. So uh, you can make a commitment to try to raise either 350, 700, 1050, 1400, or 1750 uh, dollars. I'm like, what's the word here? What's the currency we use? That um, you can essentially rate the start a campaign you're yourself and say, hey, I want with a team of people to make a commitment to try to raise $350. Now, if you can't do that, you can also support a fundraiser. You can make a donation to folks uh, via somebody's individual fundraising effort or directly to Starlight. But uh, it's kind of neat that you can do this. And one of the biggest challenges that Matt and I talked about when he was on the show is that 
for folks who want to fundraise, they need to be able to take revenue in, in a way that doesn't create a tax burden for them and doesn't get them subjected to audits and things. And what Starlight has done is really created a platform that allows organizations and people to represent them and take donations in on their behalf. And they've created an entire Ghostbusters themed landing page and et cetera for you to start a fundraiser around. So uh, definitely take a look at this. I want to give you a way to get to this easily that is not hard to you know sort of say out loud. Uh, and the URL to get there to the specific campaign page is kind of long. So my suggestion here for real is go to Ghostbusters News and find the article that talks about this because there's a big button in the middle of it that says like donate now uh, that you can take a look at. It's going to take you out to Starlight's campaign pages for this. If you have a franchise or if you don't and you just are somebody who wants to go out and try and make a difference for this, it's a very cool thing. I mean, I think that we think about what Ghostbusting means to us and for how many of us were little kids when we were scared of something out there in the world and putting on, you know, our Kenner Ghostbusters toys or putting on Halloween costumes when we were kids made us feel stronger, made us feel safer and made us feel way less scared of the world. For the opportunity for little kids today who are ill and in the hospital to put on uh, something that makes them feel better and stronger and more heroic, but more in tune with a thing they really love while they're in a really lousy situation is a really great way to help them uh, psychologically, to help them with their spirits, uh, etc. So I, I love this. I think it's such a cool thing. And I hope that folks will uh, get on board and help to support it and hope to have some more news for you soon about ways that the podcast is going to try to contribute to this. Let's talk for a few moments about people who have been in Ghostbusters movies and what they've been up to in the last two weeks. Uh, in particular, I want to talk about Finn Wolfhard for a moment, because apparently Finn Wolfhard has won a Saturn Award. Uh, if you're not sure what a Saturn Award is, Saturn Awards are the awards that are provided by the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films, uh, and Finn Wolfhard was the recipient of an award for Younger Actor in a Film. Ghostbusters Afterlife was nominated for four separate categories, including Best Fantasy Film, Best Supporting Actress in a Film for Carrie Coon, Best Film Visuals and Special Effects, and Best and Younger Actor in a Film. And Finn Wolfhard brought that uh, performance home. Personally, I'm kind of surprised to not see McKenna Grace's performance because I think that she carries that movie. Uh, and is the reason to watch that movie is that her performance as a Spangler is phenomenal. And that is not to put down anything on Finn Wolfhard. Uh, but I do find that kind of fascinating that he was recognized with an award and she was not. Uh, so uh, Finn Wolfhard, if you're out there, congratulations on your award. And also please learn to drive soon. So that way they can actually let you drive the Ecto-1 as opposed to uh, just making you sit in it. I mean, you have the opportunity. For me, that's the whole reason I would get a driver's license at this point. Uh, in Ernie Hudson news, Ernie Hudson uh, has, there's two pieces of news about Ernie Hudson. First, Ernie Hudson sat down with Jalopnik for a, an interview, and you can find this on jalopnik.com. If you don't know what Jalopnik is, it is a car website uh, that is one of the old Gawker blogs that ended up being snapped off and became its own thing when Gawker was sued basically out of existence by Hulk Hogan and others. Um, and so uh, Jalopnik is an auto enthusiast website. They sat down and interviewed Ernie Hudson, and he had some um, very perhaps unkind things to say about the Ecto-1, uh, which are, don't necessarily jive with how Winston Zedmore feels about the Ecto-1, but it's an interesting video. I won't kind of spoil it for you and tell you exactly everything's in it, but it's worth going and taking a look at. It'll definitely make you smile for sections of it. Uh, so Jalopnik, if you've never been there, is J-A-L-O-P-N-I-K, Jalopnik. Use it in a sentence. And the other Ernie Hudson news is that Ernie Hudson has been quoted 
as having read a version of the next Ghostbusters movie. Not only has he read it, but he's apparently, quote-unquote, very happy with it. In a new interview with comicbook.com, he talks about the script existing, uh, and that he has read it, and says, I did read a version. I'm pretty sure they committed to doing another one, meaning another movie. I'm very happy with it, but I also know this is early on. Jason has been incredible, and I really just love and appreciate him. I'm so thankful to be able to work with him. So, I'm excited about it, but I haven't negotiated anything. I haven't, and I never assume anything. I'm still assuming that Winston will be there. So, he has kind of come out and said that he expects he'll be there, but he doesn't know that he will, which to me is kind of interesting because it means that he has read a version where he probably has seen Winston in the movie (laughs) because otherwise he wouldn't be assuming. Um, But, you know, this is sort of the game where they can't ever talk about what's going on uh, and what's happening. And I find it kind of funny because, uh, you know, this is something where you watch how actors have to dance around what they do and don't know. Does Ernie Hudson know after reading that version of a Ghostbusters script whether or not Winston's in the movie? Probably. Would they have had him read it uh, if he wasn't going to be involved in some capacity? Probably not. So, I mean, I think it's pretty safe to assume that you're going to see Winston in the next movie, even if Ernie Hudson says he tries not to assume anything. Uh, So, you know, I think pretty clearly he's going to, that was left for us at the end of the last movie, was that Winston's got to kind of carry the torch forward. So uh, personally, I'm still hoping to see a throwdown between Winston and Ray at some point over whether or not they build an electric Ecto-1 and move into the future and all kinds of different stuff because they have the tools, they have the talent, and now they have a boatload of money to buy more tools and talent. Uh, But I'm excited about the next movie coming out. Firehouse is the name of that movie in case you've forgotten. Uh, And I think that it's going to be really cool to get back to New York in that film. So I'm glad that Ernie Hudson's excited to do another one. And I hope that, you know, we get to see a little more soon about, you know, not, I don't want to know a lot. I don't want to know anything too spoilery, but if the movie's going to come out and say next year in 2023, uh, around Christmas time, we're about a year out. It would be kind of cool to get a little tease at this point about what we should expect. Um, I know that I would be very excited. And if you think about how far out they teased, um, afterlife, we were looking at that teaser, I think in January of 2019 and before we went to fan fest. So, um, it's totally possible. We could see something kind of soon. We'll see. I mean, you know, I don't know anything. This is not me being like, sure, you're going to get something. But if you're thinking about timelines of movie release and 2023 in December is the release time, you're basically about a year out today. And finally, let's talk a little bit about, at this point, kind of an old piece of news, but I almost feel like it's an even older piece of news because this podcast kind of predicted this was going to happen. Uh, Hasbro Pulse had their yearly 1027 event uh, where they illustrate what they're doing with HasLabs and new products that are coming out on the 27th of October each year. I want to say that that's new. I I feel like there was not a 1027 event five years ago, but, you know, it's become a yearly event, apparently. Uh, And one of the things that I was teased for this 1027 event was that they had a series of different product brandings that were listed on all of their uh, social media ads for this. And there was a Ghostbusters logo. So lots of people were conjecturing and speculating that perhaps there was going to be some new Ghostbusters toy or maybe a new prop or a HasLab for a trap. And 
Over here on this podcast, I was thinking it's going to be a demonstration of the HasLab Proton Pack that we saw boxes of sitting in the lobby of Ghost Core a few weeks ago. And sure enough, that's exactly what it was. Uh, so if you haven't seen this already, you can see what the Hasbro Pulse HasLab Plasma Series Proton Pack replica looks like uh, finished, as well as what the unboxing experience is going to be like. Perhaps for the most important thing that they needed to show off and that I really predicted would be the reason to do this is that we had yet to see how the Spangler wand and the Spangler pack were going to work together. Many of us own the Hasbro Spangler wand and got it before Afterlife came out, and we were told that this new Proton pack would have the ability to interact with that wand such that the wand could control the pack. And it turns out that that is in fact a marvel that they have managed to execute. You can turn the pack on and off using the wand. Uh, I did watch this presentation, and it was a few when it came out, so this is you know, back on the 27th of October, so at this point, probably about 10 days ago, and I'm not going to pretend that I remember everything that happened in it in detail, but one of the things I remember watching it was that I saw them turn a pack on and off with this, but not much else, so I'm kind of wondering what other functionality uh, the wand and the pack have together, whether or not the lights actually accelerate in the cyclotron, etc., as you use the wand, or if that's uh, something that is beyond the capacity of what they managed to put in this, but for sure, if you want the ability to fire up a proton pack and turn it off, and on from a wand that's relatively, uh, you know, easy to use, then you back the Haslab pack, it seems like you're going to be pretty excited. Um, there won't be a lot of cabling or wiring or any of those things you need to run because it's all going to work together out of the box, which is pretty damn amazing. So um, I don't know about you all, but I'm very excited about HasLab Proton Pack. Uh, if you did watch this video, one thing I want to talk about for a second is that the Proton Pack is a cow. Uh, actually, it isn't, but if you know what I'm talking about, during the during this video, what sounded like a cow happened every time they turned the proton pack on and off. And what I've come to understand since this uh, video came out is that apparently the table that the pack stand was sitting on was allowing for a vibration when the pack fired up. And so as the stand sat on the table, it vibrated on the table, but it sounded like every time they turned the proton pack on, it went <laughs> So um, I really still want now, I've joked about this, that I want to take one of my HasLab packs and um, turn it into a Holstein cow pack with spots. Um, so Hasbro, don't get rid of the cow feature for everybody. I'm, I want one in mind for sure. That just about wraps up our news for the week. So let's go now to our discussion of the Ghostbusters firehouse in Los Angeles and a deep dive on how the firehouse was built, the political scandals that it's been involved in, and what's happening with it today. Welcome to Extraplasm Podcast, Spectral Speculation Edition, Ghost Stories of a Haunted Firehouse. This week, we're going to talk a bit about the Ghostbusters Firehouse, but perhaps not the Ghostbusters Firehouse that most people think of when they look at merchandise in their own homes, or autographed photos they have of Ghostbusters standing in front of a firehouse, or go on vacation in New York City. Uh, because most of us tend to think about Hook and Ladder 8, the firehouse in New York City that serves as the exterior location for Ghostbusters and Ghostbusters 2, uh, as the Ghostbusters Firehouse. And there's good reason for that. Our play sets as kids, or perhaps even as adults, uh, look like that building. The things that are produced by uh, different manufacturers such as Funko and others who are making little smaller versions of the firehouse look like Hook and Ladder 8 in New York City. 
I mean, even Hook and Ladder 8's Twitter account is official Ghostbusters HQ um, or their Instagram account. But the reality is that the that's only the exterior of the building because the interior of the Ghostbusters headquarters is actually an old retired firehouse in Skid Row in Los Angeles. It is a location that has been utilized not just for Ghostbusters and Ghostbusters 2, but was also featured in Big Trouble in Little China, as well as in the movie The Mask, and a variety of other different uh, productions from television commercials to TV shows to movies. That firehouse has been in a lot of different stuff. But most people don't realize that when Egon Spengler says in Ghostbusters that the firehouse is in the midst of a demilitarized zone, in some ways, they were in fact in a pretty sketchy area because Skid Row is the largest population of uh, homeless and transient people who are living in America today. And I say that not to be judgmental, but to say sort of brass tacks that Skid Row is an area of Los Angeles that uh, has been in large part for many decades, many generations cordoned off by the city as a place of deep poverty and deep strife and struggle. And today we're going to talk a bit about the firehouse that everything happens inside of in Ghostbusters and Ghostbusters 2 that sits inside of a lot of that strife. Engine 23 and Truck Company 5 is what's actually written on the exterior of the Ghostbusters firehouse in Los Angeles. And the building is one that is culturally revered and important. And we're going to talk today about why. But I want to take you back to sort of the history of this building and teach you about where it came from and sort of how it's always had a level of political scandal and struggle that it's been dealing with, even from its inception. And I want to teach you a bit about how the history of the building and how it got started uh, and how the building was constructed and what's so important about it, how it ended up being considered a cultural icon and being placed into protection because of its heritage, not because of anything to do with filming, but because of its heritage as a fire department and also a fire department that's architecturally unique. Uh, And then to talk a bit about the fire department scandal uh, that then came through the 80s and 90s because of all the filming that went on at the location. And finally, what's going on with the firehouse today, including a discussion of some photos that have been generously given to the podcast uh, by Los Angeles Ghostbusters member Sergio Nava, who you can find on Instagram as GB underscore Nava, uh, because Sergio had access to the firehouse very recently in the last few weeks and was able to get photographs, not just of the ground floor, which many of us have had some small limited opportunity to see recently, but actually of the upstairs, which no one has seen in many, many years. So uh, for me, I want to say before I get into this, this is a passion project. It took several weeks to put this together. And in fact, we missed an episode of the podcast because this became such a deep thing. Uh, And so I hope you'll come along on this journey because I think of the Ghostbusters firehouse and I think of the place that they are inside of. And I've always wanted to be inside of this building, even though uh, it might be really harrowing to go down there and check it out because I am a person who tends to get really motivated and really emotional about being in places where filming happened or where experiences happened. And as much as it's great to see the exterior of a building, to be able to stand in the exact space that any of the principal actors or the director or any or any of the people who were involved in Ghostbusters uh, were in for days, 
working on filming that movie is one of the things I would love to have happen in my life. And it probably never will, uh, especially if things don't go well with how this renovation is going to wind up. So come along with me on this journey. This is a bit of a passion project for me. Uh, find out a bit about the Ghostbusters firehouse, the actual inside of the Ghostbusters firehouse. And we're going to begin our journey back in the Wayback machine back in September of 1910. In September of 1910, Engine Company 23 and Truck Company 5 opened as an extravagant piece of architecture that was unique in design. It was also highly criticized, coming in at a cost of over $53,000, according to the LA Times in 1910, which would roughly come out to about $1.8 million today. At the time that the firehouse was built, the commissioners who signed off on it actually denied knowing it would be this opulent because of the number of critics that came out and said that the firehouse was a bit ridiculous. Uh, This is largely because, as the LA Times pointed out, it had cost enough money that they could have built three firehouses with the budget that they spent on one. So... This is largely because of the way in which the firehouse was put together and what was in it. In the terms of, say, Jurassic Park and John Hammond, they spared no expense. This is in large part because the firehouse served as the entire department's headquarters and the chief's residence for all of the firefighters in LA, in in LAFD, in LA Fire Department. So this was not just a place where we're just a new firehouse, but it was also going to serve as the headquarters for the entire department and also the place that the chief would be living and based out of. So there's a really good chance that some of those commissioners did know (laughs) how much things were going to cost and they really wanted to make sure that that was going to be an outstanding place to have as your headquarters and also for the chief to live. And so they ended up erecting a building that is among the narrowest buildings in the entire city of Los Angeles. The building is 26 feet wide and 52 feet tall, and it actually spans from 5th Street to Winston Street, and the entire ground floor is an arcade with two with essentially entrances and exits on each end. It's 168 feet deep because it's essentially an entire city blocks depth of of houses or, or residential buildings from one end to the other. And it was filled with some of the greatest technology of the day, including a passenger elevator with safety protections to only run with closed doors that ran to the third floor. It was a private elevator up to the uh, third floor penthouse area, as we'll call it. And we'll talk about that in a moment. It had a freight elevator and a lift that ran from the basement to the third floor as well. Uh, and specifically, it went to uh, the hayloft, which we'll talk about the horses that were inside the firehouse in a moment. Uh, and it had steam heat and electric automated fire bells and automated facilities for horses. So essentially, when the fire bells would go off, the horses were inside their stables and the gates and things for the horses would end up opening up so that that way the horses could come out easily. So it was a really automated firehouse for its day. It had a lot of different technological features to allow for quick response to fire uh, and implemented a lot of new technology. And it had been designed, although it had horses when it opened, the ground floor arcade was designed to hold both horses and an auto truck with a 65 foot ladder. So here was your first actual auto truck for the city of Los Angeles. This is an important thing to think about that not only did they have this amazing historic fire department, but this was also the first fire department to be given an automated ladder truck uh, to work with. So it didn't actually come into use 
for at least a couple years, but it was designed, the building, to accommodate both horses and uh, a ladder truck. And in reality, it turns out that Engine 23 and Truck Company 5, or as I'm going to sort of call it to make things a little easier here, sometimes Firehouse 23 or just Engine 23, uh, Engine 23 was the last firehouse to be built to support horses. So it's an interesting thing to think about that it was the first firehouse to have an auto truck that had a ladder that was automated and it was the last firehouse to actually be built to support horses and there were 10 horses with stables that were there to move the fire engine at that time when they referred to an engine they meant as a steam engine that would be working to power things like pumps to move water etc so uh really kind of weird to think about. It's a transitional moment. It's kind of this transition between the horse-drawn era of firefighting and moving to mechanized automation. And all of that went into the design of the firehouse. They wanted it to be cutting edge and top of the line and have the greatest technology alongside also being a beautiful place uh, that was well-designed and almost like a fire palace. <laughs> so uh, we're going to talk a bit about what that was like in terms of the features of the firehouse in terms of how it was designed and so the ground floor arcade was 24 feet wide the building itself was 26 and the ground floor when you consider the walls etc the open space was 24 feet wide at a 21 foot tall ceiling so you have a building that essentially the ground floor is almost as tall as it is wide and as we talked about few moments ago it's 168 feet deep that spanned uh, from 5th street to Winston street the entire ceiling in the ground floor had pressed steel as its ceiling so when you think about Ghostbusters and you think about how the top the ceiling looks above their heads and it has that pattern in it it's because that is a pressed steel ceiling that was actually pressed into position with that pattern it also had repressed vitrified brick flooring and as many of us who've watched Ghostbusters know uh, it had white tiles that were shining brilliantly white with green accents and enamel. Uh, so the whole arcade area was designed in a way that it was supposed to be a large open space to get equipment in and out. Uh, but it was also, you know, designed to look gorgeous for people coming in to be able to look at it and see it as a uh, luxury place to be. In fact, uh, the LA Times in 1910, when the firehouse opened, joked that the f uh, fire chief would have to wear evening dress after 6 p.m. because the uh, facility was so luxurious. Whereas the first floor of the firehouse is designated for equipment, uh, for horses, the second floor is designated for the firefighters themselves. The second floor was the place where you had the dormitory for firefighters who were living there, uh, which had 20 hospital beds and a locker room with 20 lockers, as well as the quarters of the captain of the house, an assembly room, and a reading room with built-in bookcases with doors of leaded glass. Uh, there were The entire second floor was decorated in white oak finish, and there were six brass fire poles that ran from the second floor down to the first floor. They... First, second floor had concrete floors and white enamel tile bathrooms as well. So the white tile theme that you would see downstairs continued upstairs in the bathroom areas, whereas the rest of the environment was decorated in a white oak finish. It was when you went up to the third floor of the firehouse that you really saw how opulent things got. Uh, the third floor was essentially almost like a penthouse suite, except it was divided up to allow for residential space for a chief as well as a visiting chief. And so 
The third floor was kind of like an opulent penthouse the LA Fire Department chief lived in full time, and then if other chiefs were coming in to do business in town, they could utilize the space. It had a reception room with a large bow or bow window that looked out over the street. Uh, it had oak floors and white stucco ceiling with mantles of marble that went around the inside of the room. So the reception room had this mantle of marble uh, that was carved out of stone, obviously, and Peruvian mahogany paneling with leather coverets and seven-foot enormous French bevel glass mirrors. Uh, So this was a place of opulence. It was designed to be like a reception room where you could run events. And so it was not like your average living room, something like a ballroom almost. Uh, And the chief's suite had a marble standing shower and a tub that was described by the LA Times as being large enough for two large chiefs, um, as well as a bedroom that the LA Times of 1910 described as being a boudoir featuring a large brass bed and three mahogany lockers. The chief suite had a private elevator that ran from the first floor all the way to the third floor, uh, and that was the primary way to access it. And there was a private brass sliding pole that went down to the second floor. So essentially, the chief had his own fire pole and had his own elevator uh, (laughs) as a way to get in and out of the building alongside the stairs. And then uh, the Third, the third floor also had a secondary suite, which also had its own reception room. So the deputy chief or visiting chief didn't just have like, hey, here's your own room, but they had their own suite with their own reception room with the matching accoutrements of the one I just described. So it had the marble, uh, it had the marble mantle, it had the Peruvian mahogany, it had the mirrors, etc. So essentially, it was almost like a copy of the other room. The there was an additional single room with a bathroom for emergency quarters for other visiting personnel who might be coming into town. So if you had like a long-term visiting chief who was there doing business, uh, say from another area in California, who was going to be there for several weeks, they may be occupying that deputy chief's suite. And then you might have an emergency and have someone else who comes into the environment. You had an additional room with a private bathroom that you could give to that person. So that kind of sets up what Engine 23 was when it first opened. It was a new firehouse that was cutting edge in terms of its technology. It had a lot of aesthetic value placed into it in terms of making it not just another firehouse, but one that was going to be sort of, um, as the LA Times of later would call it the Taj Mahal of firehouses, such that it was not just a place to come and work if you were a firefighter, but it was supposed to be an icon that represented the entire department. It was supposed to serve as the department's headquarters and essentially be what people would think of when they thought about the place where firefighting came from, which to me is kind of funny because it's kind of like thinking about the place where ghostbusting comes from. It's iconic. Um, and so it was intended to be an iconic building. They wanted it to be that, uh, whether or not people wanted to take credit for it afterwards because they were being criticized for how much it costs. Uh, it was pretty clear that there was an intent to make this a cultural waypoint in terms of the city. By the 1920s, some significant changes started to happen to Engine 23, and one of them is that the first woman to live in a firehouse in L.A. uh, moved in, and that's largely because Chief Ralph J. Scott ended up marrying Addie Haas, and they began their family life in the firehouse. In 1920, uh, when Scott becomes 
chief, he decides to move the headquarters from their location there on the in the building to Hill and Second Street uh, to a firehouse that no longer exists and has been since torn down. And the entire third floor was turned into a living quarters suite for just the chief. So whereas before the chief originally had about half of that space and was using uh, sharing it with, say, visiting personnel. Now the entire third floor would be turned into a family suite for the chief and his family. And the showrooms were converted into living room space and the Chief, visiting chief's quarters were turned into a kitchen. So the Scots ended up living on the top floor until 1927 when they moved out and went to a home that they built. Uh, but that third floor space ended up housing the fire chiefs from 1910 out till about 1930. The horses ended up leaving the firehouse and the station became a motorized unit entirely as well during the 1920s. And April 29th, 1921 is the last date that a horse-drawn run happened from the firehouse. And that information comes to us according to uh, L.A. Fire Department Captain Larry Schneider, who runs the Los Angeles Fire Department Historical Archive hosted at LAFire.com. And so, essentially, if you think about how long the horses were there, the fire department opened in 1910. The horses came in at the same time as the first auto truck, and the horses were out of the fire department by 1920, by the end of 1921. So they were there for about uh, about 11 years at most. Uh, so kind of interesting to think about that that's the last fire department that was built for horses, and they weren't even there for much more than a decade uh, before the entire process of firefighting had changed such that there was no reason to continue to have them around. So at that point, the ground floor horse stalls were dismantled because they were no longer needed. And presumably the hayloft on the third floor, which was also present um, behind the chief's location, the chief's penthouse on the opposite side of the building, that was also cleared out and no longer needed. So at this point, not a lot changes from the 1920s forward. It's a firehouse. It operates as a firehouse. There's changes in personnel. There's changes in technology. There's certainly changes in the neighborhood because Skid Row is kind of deteriorating around the firehouse, uh, especially in the post-Depression era. Things don't really get much better, right? This, as much as the country gets better after the Depression, Skid Row doesn't really rebound. And so the firehouse continues to operate, and it operates in a context that is kind of getting sketchier and sketchier. And by the time we reach 1960, the building's life as a firehouse ends. And instead, sort of a period of neglect by the city begins. So in 1960, the firehouse is given its closing date and the firefighters who are there move on. It's deemed obsolete, and as the neighborhood declines around it, the fire department elects to close it and relocate its staff and assets to another location. At the same time, uh, the building is kind of just left. They close it up, they lock it up, and it's just kind of sitting there. And at points, it's being broken into, and people are getting inside and doing things to it and taking things out of it. And it's obviously been a pr pretty significant investment. At that point in 1960, the building has 
is essentially about 50 years old. And obviously the city spent a lot of money to build it. So the Los Angeles Cultural Heritage Board steps in in 1966 to declare the building a historic cultural monument in order to protect it from being raised as different ideas are coming into being about what to do with old properties in the downtown area and particularly in Skid Row where people are maybe getting into buildings and stealing things and doing different stuff they shouldn't be doing. So they saved the building from being raised in 1966 and the Department of Public Works ends up with the responsibility to take care of the building and manage it. And they kind of don't. Um, there's just the building is kind of left to rot uh, in Skid Row through the 1960s. And there's not anybody really maintaining it or doing anything with it or making sure that things are fine with it. In fact, by 1974, the Department of Public Works tries to raise the building themselves uh, by deeming that it's seismically unsafe due to what they believe is brick construction that in an earthquake would crumble apart and the building would come down upon anybody who was inside, except that they're wrong. Uh, in fact, a second inspection of the building reveals that the building, because it was built so technologically sound for what it was at the turn of the century, uh, was one of the first concrete buildings to be built in the city of Los Angeles, and thus was one of the most seismically stable old buildings in the entire downtown area at the time. And so the Department of Public Works even though they kind of have a bit of a mission to get rid of the building in 1974, they kind of can't get it done. And at the same time, throughout the 60s and the early 70s, the building gets looted. By the time we get to 1974, most of the copper tubing that's in the building, the brass fire poles, etc., they're gone. They've been taken out by looters who have taken to scrap them and get money for them. So the building is in some serious disrepair after the 1960s and through the 1970s. In 1978, Public Works decides to agree to allow a tenant named James Croak to live on the premises as a caretaker. And Croak was the first tenant to move into the firehouse in 18 years, and he basically moved in an as-is condition. He was a general contractor uh, and a construction worker, and so essentially he was given the task of living in the building rent-free um, while working to help to rehabilitate it. And he told the LA Times uh, when he was interviewed about this in the 1980s and 1990s that he had been dealing with a lot of trash that had been piled up around the building for many years. And when he first showed up, he had to clear out trash just to get inside the building that had been piled up around it. And then once he was inside, he had to secure it from being an open hotel, quote unquote, to local transients, vagrants, folks who were just coming in and stealing things from the building or sleeping inside and squatting, etc. And so he used his skills as a carpenter and a licensed general contractor to remove coats of old paint from the mahogany, to repair the tile work and the moldings, and otherwise spruce up the building. In fact, he is the person who ends up getting the funding, and we'll talk about where in a moment, and the resources to put fire poles back in place after they've been torn out. And so Croak does a lot of work through the late 70s, like from 1978 on and through the early 80s to clean up the firehouse and restore it back to a point that looks like it does in 1984 when we see it on screen. Uh, it has, it's not covered in paint and graffiti and grime and stuff and people living inside of it. Rather, it's a place that's been really cleaned up to be spick and span, uh, especially down on the bottom floor where a lot of the filming went on. So 
And we're going to talk about that filming and how it gets started in a second. The filming at Engine 23 really begins in 1979, and along with it comes a brand new political scandal. In 1979, Croak claims he was approached by a television commercial location scout who had an interest in using the firehouse as a filming location because of the massive amount of space that it had, as well as the architecture that was really unique. And Croak agrees to this, and turns out that he's that particular scout is not alone. Other people have seen the building, and the scout word spreads from the scout about this space. And Croak begins taking in revenue to the tune of $1,500 to $5,000 a day in film fees that he's using to help pay for refurbishing the building. So by his testimony that he would end up giving later on in life, uh, he did not pocket this money. It wasn't really so much revenue for him as much as he's working in the building and he's living there rent-free and he doesn't have the money to actually go out and buy a lot of the materials himself. He told the LA Times in 1995, I was not a wealthy person, so I just hit on the idea that I'd have these film guys come in and use the money to fix the place up. So he's getting $1,500 to $5,000 a day in 1979 money, um, which today is a lot more money. I'm not going to do the inflation calculation right now while we're talking, <laughs> but um, I, I think that if you think about what's going on, he's got a lot of revenue coming in per day for these film projects, and he's taking that and then putting it back into materials. It's how an individual affords, you know, giant brass fire poles, uh, because he's getting film budgets that are being spent in the location that he is the caretaker of. In 1979, uh, the fire department goes back to the city and says, we want to build a museum and we would like to use Engine 23 to do it. And so the firehouse is something that the city is trying to save from being crushed uh, in different contexts or raised, uh, ends up being earmarked as a property designated for the Los Angeles Fire Department's use as a museum. And in directing the department to develop that museum, the council of the city made a motion. And they stated in the motion that no city money was to be used to fund the project and the station, quote unquote, could not be used for any other purpose. And this order also authorized fire officials to go and seek contributions to be placed in a trust fund in the city treasury. So essentially, they said, we are not going to pay for a museum, but we will give you the building to utilize. Don't come ask us for the money to fund the museum, but do go and seek contributions from others to fund the museum and put that money in a trust fund in the city tre treasury or retain it by a nonprofit organization. So let that sink in for a moment because it's going to become really important in a few minutes when we talk about what ends up happening with this money. But the long and short of it is that in 1979, the city says, Fire Department, you can use the building for a museum, but you need to come up with the funds yourself on how to actually renovate the building and then run a museum and operate it in, this, in the space. Uh, so we're not going to pay for it. Go out and generate and raise that revenue and either give it to the city treasury or retain it by a proper nonprofit organization. Two years later, in 1981, members of the fire department's senior leadership formed a nonprofit public benefit organization with the goal of soliciting donations to develop and run their museum. And the name of this organization was Old 23. Now, the board of directors of Old 23 included a retired fire chief, John Gerard, a deputy chief, Gerald Johnson, who was essentially the acting chief until a new chief was coming in, and fire commissioners Anne Reese Lane and John Lawson. And 
Chief Donald Manning would join them in 1983 when he joined the department on the board of directors. Now, for a long time, people have sort of suggested, like, why are they building whatever they're building downtown or in Skid Row out of the firehouse? Like, there's been discussions of a youth arts center more recently and things. And I think it's kind of ironic because, like, back in 1981, when people were talking about building a fire museum (laughs) in Skid Row... There was some criticism of this in terms of city politics and in terms of local news. And in the face of that criticism, Johnson told the Los Angeles Times in 1981, this whole area is rescheduled for redevelopment. Down the road, it won't look like this. You have to remember that 23 actually was the headquarters of the fire department at one time. And I find this kind of amusing in a way because this is often the story of things in Skid Row is that, oh, there's a resource here, or in downtown LA, there's a resource here. It's in the middle of something that's really dangerous or that's really a struggle for the people who are here. What do we do about that struggle? I don't know, but don't worry. We're going to redevelop this building and all the other buildings around it, and down the road, it won't be like this. (laughs) So not to get super political about LA local politics, but it's an interesting thing to consider that even back in 1981, the discussion of why you'd build a fire museum in the midst of the largest homeless population in America, uh, and this is before a lot of things get even worse from the ending of mental health programs and things that happens through the 80s, uh, there's this expectation that we'll build this here and it will just improve around it. So the firehouse is, is given to the fire department. It's their job now to work on rebuilding it, restoring it, fixing it, etc. But that's all they're supposed to be doing with it at that point. They've been told explicitly that they're not supposed to use it for any other purpose other than a museum. But despite those provisions <laughs> that the firehouse be used only as a museum, Old 23 ended up finding out that they inherited a tenant. So not only did they get a building, but they also got a tenant who lived inside named James Croak. And they went to James Croak and they said, you need to start to pay us $400 a month in rent. So currently you're here living rent free and we want you to pay us $400 a month in rent. We've taken control of the building from Public Works. A nonprofit organization now owns the building, which wasn't really so much true because they didn't own it as much as they were managing it. The city still owns it. Uh, And the fire department had the ability to renegotiate rent paid by its tenant, so they wanted $400 a month. And Croak agreed to stop construction and renovation work once the museum plans were finalized and to start paying $400 a month in rent. Filming on the premises also continued, but now with Old 23's involvement. So again, despite the fact that the city council said you could use the building only as a museum and not for any other purpose, now the building was being used as a filming location, including with the fire department's involvement. And they were taking a quote-unquote piece of the action, according to Croak's statements to the LA Times in 1995. So, ironically enough, the first film that Old 23 ended up receiving funds for was, in fact, Ghostbusters. A 1995 audit of Old 23's financial management revealed that tax records from 1984 show a $3,000 donation for Ghostbusters from Columbia Pictures. Now, this is kind of interesting because these kinds of payments probably would have been illegal, not only because the building was not supposed to be used for any activity other than a museum, but because Old 23 was functionally taking in business revenue and payment for services rendered, in other words, like subleasing the space or utilizing it or renting it to film in, 
but they were treating those funds as if they were nonprofit donations. So this is sort of like a form of quid pro quo, right? Where um, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You give me money and I will let you use my firehouse that's actually a public resource and that belongs to the city and not me personally. Right? So it's kind of what's going on in this context. So this is pretty dicey. And by 1985, Croak elects to move out of the location and he's no longer involved and he ultimately finds his way to New York. Old 23 replaces him with a new tenant named Daniel Taylor, who ultimately becomes the last tenant that Engine 23 will have um, before its renovation begins because he's there that long. When Taylor comes in, he tells the LA Times in 1995 that he was placed on a $400 month-to-month lease, so the same lease that Croak had been on. The lease stipulated that the premises were to be used as a caretaker residence for the Los Angeles City Fire Department Museum. And the lease was kind of weird too, because the lease was not signed or stamped by the city clerk's office and had been modified like with a typewriter by typing in two provisions on the very bottom of it. One, that the fire chief could terminate the lease at any time for any reason. And two, that quote unquote, the lessee also agrees that the lessor may conduct motion picture filming upon said premises. Now, Daniel Taylor told the LA Times in 1995 that he was placed in charge of operating filming on the premises as part of his lease agreement. So he was told that he was supposed to collect $500 for Old 23 each time the station was used. And he told the LA Times, quote unquote, they laid the book out for me and I followed the book. And Taylor additionally noted to the LA Times that he was told to cash checks received from production companies and convert them to cash or money order donations to give to Old 23. And so this essentially obfuscated the sources of revenue because it would mean that they, they would not be able to trace back as easily whether or not checks had been cashed or canceled checks had been give, were coming out of Old 23's accounts as much as cash donations were now going to be given to Old 23. And Taylor would charge $1,000 to $2,000 a day to use the site, often keeping excess revenue for services he rendered as part of an unlicensed production company he was operating on the premises. So uh, there's some examples of this in a 1995 LA Times article about this, this whole controversy that are things like Taylor dressing up parts of the firehouse as a blues club uh, for a location and then people coming in and filming it and he's charging two, three, four thousand dollars and he's giving a five hundred dollar cut to the uh, fire department or rather to old 23, this nonprofit organization. Uh, but essentially he's making a lot of money, right? He's generating a lot of revenue. And at the same time as he's generating all this revenue, his production company is entirely unlicensed. So he doesn't have any of the licenses that would he would require to actually run a production company in the space or to lease the space out. But when questioned about this, all he can tell the LA Times is, all I know is that my lease allows me to do what I'm doing, quote unquote. Uh, so he's running a business in the space, but not necessarily with any insurance, uh, not with any of the things that you would need to legally run the business properly. And keep in mind that it's still a firehouse that is, you know, uh, built in 1910 and has been sitting largely uh, uninspected or unmanaged, except for one guy who was living inside and fixing things up with the money that he was getting from doing filming in the building. So, this starts to become an even more dicey story because 
as filming profits boom at the firehouse and they're making more and more money, now uh, the chief Manning and the deputy chief Johnson begin campaigning in the 1980s for a new location for their museum. So they go to the local politicians in the city and start talking about how this they have this firehouse they've been given to build a museum, but it's totally not appropriate to put it where it is because the firehouse is in Skid Row. And additionally, the building is so old that we don't even know what its condition is, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they go and talk about how they want to get a new museum because they can't use the one they have. And at the same time as they're doing this, between 1988 and 1995, 54 films and productions had permits to shoot at the firehouse. And meanwhile, payments for only about half of these can be found in financial records. Um, so they're talking about how the building is so you know, unreasonable to use as a museum at the same time as 54 different productions are coming in and shooting in a space that hasn't really been vetted. Uh, and as they're going around and publicly advocating that Skid Row is no longer accessible, they're trying to find a new space essentially to leave this filming space open. So they lobby local politicians for an alternative site. And ultimately the fire department decides to build its museum at, in Hollywood and they don't end up using Engine 23 for a museum at all. But weirdly enough, they still keep Old 23, the organization that's been taking all this money for a museum, open. And they still continue to solicit donations at the same time as they still continue to control the building they now don't intend to use for a museum. Now keep in mind, the city's policy was you can have the building as long as you use it and only use it for a museum. Now they've decided to move their museum somewhere else. But this is one of those things that sort of falls through the cracks of politics and local city politics. And nobody really notices this is going on for quite some time. So... They continue to utilize the building to continue filming. And at the same time as they're using the building for filming, the city goes off and starts building a museum for the fire department. At no point does Old 23 take $92,000 in donations that it had in its bank accounts, according to the LA Times, and give any of it to the city. So this is this point we're talking about, uh, you know, at the point in the 1980s, like late 1980s, probably shortly before or right around the same time that Ghostbusters 2 is being filmed, because it's about 1988, 1989, that they're getting this successful move to a new environment for the museum. And they don't offer up any of what was $92,000 in their savings at that point. Uh, and what's really weird is that that money is not being given to the local city treasury, and it was supposed to be held in a nonprofit account. But it turns out it's not. In fact, the money's been put into a private account. It's only accessible to Manning and Johnson. This starts to get really, really weird because now you have a fire department donation organization, right? An organization that's soliciting funds for a project that's no longer happening. Uh, if it is happening, it's happening somewhere else in the city and it's being funded by different means. So, what are they doing with all the money they're sitting on? And this comes to a head in 1995. The reason? Batman. In 1994, Warner Brothers had used an old fire station in Echo Park, and in exchange for using it, they paid a $2,500 donation to Old 23, and they were told that that donation was going to be utilized for building a museum at Engine 23. 
They additionally donated $5,000 in video equipment and were told it was going to be utilized for the fire museum. When they discovered that, in fact, there was no longer a plan to build a fire museum and that they had paid donation money to a private fund, essentially, that was no longer using the money to build anything, they were incensed and pissed off. And Michael Walbrecht, who was director of studio and production affairs, ended up writing a memo to all of his location managers that ended up being passed along to the city that said, these types of donations to the fire department are not governed by city regulation and, under normal circumstances, should not be paid. He further called them, quote-unquote, a form of extortion. Ultimately, the anger of studio executives found its way into city politics in Los Angeles, surprise, and triggered an audit of Old 23. It was a giant, big, huge newspaper coverage on this over the course of uh, two issues of the LA Times in 1995 uh, in articles by Robert Lopez. And they are really fascinating to go look at if you can pull them from archives because they talk about so much of what's going on here. But to distill it down, a total of at least $211,000 in funds were placed into a private account held by Manning and Johnson and never provided to the city treasury. $4,500 of this was for films that never even had permits. And $6,000 of it were for fees that were completely unaccounted for, where nobody knew whether or not the money had ever actually been paid or not. They were just sort of entered into their records. And the actions of Old 23 opened the city up to massive liability was once one of the biggest findings here because no production or business insurance was carried at the site whatsoever. So here was a situation where what you probably should have had was like a $1.5 million insurance policy because you have studio activity going on, but there was no insurance policy, which would have just left the city open to liability if something had ever happened. And it's probably a blessing that it never did. Fire officials... Also, never had the 85-year-old, then 85-years-old, structure inspected for stability. So despite the earlier 1974 concerns by the Public Works Department, who wanted to tear the building down, the fire officials never bothered to do anything to actually inspect the building for seismic stability or uh, to ensure the foundation was still secure or any of those things. They just went along with what was going on? Public Works moved a guy in in 1978 and he was fixing up the building. He was there until he stopped and then they brought a new guy in to run a film company <laughs> or a film leasing company. So in that situation, uh, you know, sort of all the work stopped to even maintain the building. Um, needless to say, Manning and Johnson quietly resigned from their positions in 1995 and left Los Angeles Fire Department. And all the former commissioners who had signed off on this uh, project and created Old 23 had quite a bit to say about how they had no idea that this was going on. <laughs> they essentially thought that the building had been in control of a, a, a neighborhood a resource group. And was, even though it was not being utilized for the fire department anymore, that somebody else had been given it in the city, that they were not aware that the fire department had maintained and retained the building. So the fire department's involvement in running the building essentially sunsets around 1995 at the same time as old 23 is kind of called out and made very clear that they're involved in some pretty financial wonky stuff. So what happens next? Well, this is about when Engine 23's long and ill-fated transition to a youth arts center that still hasn't happened has began. In 1996, the building was ultimately placed into the control of the Department of General Services. And they had to figure out what to do with it. 
There was a 1996 ballot initiative called Proposition K that was a Los Angeles City proposition that would have funded building or rehabilitating youth and recreation facilities throughout the city. So this is supposed to be money that's earmarked for youth recreation or youth arts programs. And a lot of this came out of the notion that like in the 90s, they looked at things like city pools and they said, why are all of our pools so lousy and well, poorly maintained? And they were like, oh, they were built in like the 1950s. That makes sense. Uh, so they needed to get to go out and like kind of rehab a lot of park facilities and things. And this ballot initiative was put out there to do that. Now, a ballot initiative, for those of you who may not be familiar with that, is when there's a potential way to solve a problem and you allow the constituents in your community to directly vote on it. So as opposed to voting for a politician and then you have to like lobby your politician to do what you want, uh, this is a situation where voters sign petitions and if enough people sign the petition, then the item ends up on the ballot during election season and then you can vote for or against that thing. And to be fair, when I grew up in New York, there weren't so many ballot initiatives. After moving to California, I learned that California has a rigorous ballot initiative process. Uh, and so the ballot initiative essentially told the city voters in Los Angeles that if they voted for it, $25 million per year would be allocated over the next 30 years to take 180 plus properties, give or take a few, uh, and turn them into improvements. Either take a park that was beat up and fix it up, a basketball court that needed work and correct it. And in th this case, Engine 23 was selected and marked as one of the things that should be improved, and it was designated in the ballot initiative when it was put forth to the voters as the future home of a youth arts center. And this is important because we're going to talk about this in a few minutes about why ballot initiatives are hard to change, but this is sort of the moment that Engine 23's fate is sealed for the next like 30 years at least because of how this ballot initiative is written. Now, at the same time that Engine 23 is selected and marked as the future home of the Youth Arts Center, Daniel Taylor is still at the firehouse. So he hasn't been moved out, and he's now still paying rent to someone. And to be honest with you, I couldn't figure out who. <laughs> like, who was still taking his rent at this point? But Daniel Taylor remained at the firehouse, and he continued to allow filming to go on there, forming a nonprofit group that he called the Corporation for History, Art, and Culture. And he was also running public events there without insurance or city authorization. So he was running beat poetry events and different situations where he would open up the ground floor of the firehouse and allow people to come in and experience something in the space, whether it was performance art, whether it was something he was having like an exhibit, whatever it was. Uh, and it was a lot of community oriented stuff. And if you've ever been on GB fans and seen the old photos of the inside of the firehouse that are hosted there, uh, then you've probably seen his Honda parked like in the, <laughs> in the ground floor, just people sitting around on couches because it was treated as an open space. He had a loft on the third floor that he was living in and downstairs he treated like a studio and a public performance space where people would come in and do beat poetry and stuff. Ultimately, the city had to fight him for a while and they evicted him by 2010. And the work to redesign, rehabilitate, etc. could finally begin. Now, the first phases of the project were oriented around removing existing tile work, fixtures, etc. Now, a weird thing about Engine 23 is not only was it put onto like the city's historic cultural list of properties, 
but it's actually also on the National Registry of Historic Places. Again, not because of Ghostbusters, but because of its unique architecture and its unique design. Uh, it, it essentially serves as one of the last remaining vestiges of firehouses of that era that were being built uh, and built up. And so essentially, this is a situation where this is a firehouse that's been protected in a way. If you take something out of it, you arguably have to put it back and restore it back to uh, what its original aesthetic was. So part of this work is literally about going in and taking down all the tiles, all the fixtures, all the stuff that makes that building look like what it looks like and gives it the cultural aesthetic that it has. If you don't save it, if you just go in and rip it out, you're not really doing anything. There's no reason to keep the building. Why not just knock it down then? So for years, part of the process was to go in and figure out like what needs to be pulled out of the building. Where are you going to take it? Where are you going to warehouse it, etc.? Now, uh, what you're looking at is that when you see the firehouse photos uh, that are out on the internet and some of those that we're going to put out with this podcast, you're going to notice that there are no tiles. There are no fixtures. There are none of those things because it's all been removed for a seismic stabilization project. The building did, in fact, need work to be brought up to code, and it needed to have a lot of different seismic additions or, you know, or improvements made so that that way it won't fall down in an earthquake. And so this meant that the first phase of the project was really not even one that talked yet about what specifically is going to be inside as much as just like, hey, it's going to be a youth art center and we know we need to go do these things to shore up the building first. And so between 2010 and now, a lot of what went on was that part of the process was going in and fixing up the building to a point where it was stable. Now, Prop K projects, their interior design, their function, their programming, the, what it's supposed to do for the community is supposed to be discussed with what's called a local volunteer neighborhood oversight committee. Essentially, it's a group of volunteers from the neighborhood, uh, activists, concerned stakeholders, etc., who come forward and want to talk about what this project should do in their community. And every one of the Prop K projects has uh, these opportunities for local volunteer neighborhood oversight committees to engage with city officials about what's going into their community and how they can utilize it and what it's for. Now, this led to public questions from Skid Row residents, because when you put in like new youth programming in most places in the city, that's treated as, wow, great, more stuff for kids. But the Skid Row residents and activists representing their interests in downtown LA had some pretty serious questions about why a youth arts center was being built in Skid Row when there were so few kids in the area. And Activist and fashion pattern maker Catherine McNenny, who I is also uh, runs a nonprofit organization that helps to build, bring out uh, trees and bring greenery into the downtown area and it's the urban environment, notes in a recent Medium.com article that by 2013, the few remaining non-governmental organizations that served children in Skid Row had closed their doors or moved because of a complete lack of kids to serve. So. The question became like, why are they building a youth arts center in the middle of this environment when there's no local kids who are going to use it? And at the same time, you're essentially saying that it has to be a youth arts center. It has to be something that only kids can use. And this raised some serious concerns about gentrification, safety, and ultimately why a cultural resource in Skid Row, meaning the building, because it is a cultural resource that is where it is in that neighborhood, was being made inaccessible to the local community members in favor of serving kids from the outside community, from outside the community, from the rest of the city. And that is a sort of sticking point that began to really uh, 
come up over and over again between the city and between stakeholders in Skid Row and in downtown who represent those people in Skid Row. And in large part, because if you really think about it, there's so few things down there. So the fact that the firehouse was opened up as a safe place to come for performance art and thing, things was like a valuable resource for those people. When it was closed up because the city came back in and threw Daniel Taylor out, they felt they lost a community resource and a performance space and etc. So during a 2018 meeting between representatives of the city and the local volunteer uh, neighborhood oversight committee, the city's lawyers explained in legal, if not well thought or emotionally sensitive language, that the firehouse would have to serve kids because of the nature of a ballot proposition, and that any adult use would have to be quote-unquote tangential and quote-unquote inconsequential. This is kind of insulting, right, to tell a group of people that, like, you can use the building as long as your use of the building is inconsequential, meaning that no one cares about it and we don't care about it either. It's kind of, it kind of comes across as demeaning, right? I mean, it's a you live in a community, there's a firehouse in your community, it's a public resource, and you're saying that you can't use it, only kids can use it, and only those kids who don't live here, and by the way, we may let you use it, but only if your your use is inconsequential and doesn't really have any consequences or isn't the priority because you're a tangent, right? So this created some frustration, uh, some real genuine frustration between community members, including an activist uh, who has since passed, who went by the name General Jeff. And General Jeff was referred to by Skid Row activist community members as, quote-unquote, the mayor of Skid Row. Uh, He was an outspoken activist who would come out and talk about issues, was well-known to city officials. um, And he showed up at this meeting along with other representatives of the Skid Row community and wanted to understand why it is that this was the case, especially because Proposition K also contains language suggesting that its funds could not be used for any project discriminating access based on age. So this is a weird thing, right? Like you have a proposition that says we're going to build a bunch of youth-oriented programming and facilities. We're going to use the taxpayer dollars to do that. And you have to make it for kids. That's who it's for. That's who it has to be for because that's what we funded. At the same time, that very same ballot proposition's other provisions and other sections of it say that you cannot fund any project that discriminates based on age. So... The Skid Row activists and the Skid Row community and the lawyers and folks who represent those groups are sort of, you know, wringing their hands and saying, like, how can you say that it's not accessible to us based on age at the same time as you have a policy that says you can't fund it if that's the case? And how do you rectify this problem? Like, how do you rectify the the lack of congruity here between a, a provision in the law that says you have to fund it for kids and predominantly kids. And at the same time, you're going to say that you can't fund it if it denies access based on age. They essentially came into the meeting and suggested that there was an opportunity to build uh, a community center that could have a recording studio and help to facilitate creating media and performance art, etc. from people in the community. And we're told that that was not really a potential possibility. And the rationale for why, according to city lawyers, was that a ballot proposition is sort of set that you give it to the voters and you say, this is what we're going to do and you can vote for it or you can vote against it. But once you make that commitment and say to the voters, this is what we're going to do, you can't change it after they agree to it. If you do, you need to put it back up to the voters in order to get them to approve the change. So that would mean taking the entire ballot proposition 
election back to the voters to make modifications to the entire proposition over this one property. Uh, so essentially, this is why the policy sits the way it does in terms of why it's supposed to be a youth arts center is that it was designated as such in 1996 while there were still kids in the Skid Row area. And now there aren't. So why does it make sense to build the youth arts center? Now for years, that question really didn't get answered. It just was the situation they kept moving forward on because this is what was funded and this is the project. And to be real, it's a 30 year project. Now that sounds like a long time, except that the project began in 1996 and it's 2022. <laughs> they didn't really make any work on this. They had to get people out of the building. They had to do a lot of stuff. And it's not like they're working on all 180 of these projects at exactly the same time necessarily. There's $25 million being funded each year towards these projects. So this means though that you're now facing a situation where you were almost, you know, you're four years out from the 30 year window to finish this project. Uh, and we're at this point don't have a clientele that is in the local environment that would benefit from it. So why does the firehouse look the way it does now? And that's the key question here. What I've been able to find out in the last few weeks is that the firehouse restoration project may have been placed on hold. And it seems that there may have been some recognition from the city at this point that it is not particularly viable to build a youth arts center in Skid Row in a post-COVID environment where situations have gotten even more drastic regarding uh, homeless populations and uh, people lacking housing and dealing with significant problems in the state of California. We have epically historic uh, you know, housing issues that are going on. And as a result, it means that like Skid Row has gotten even more troubling in the time that We've gone through COVID and a lot of homeless policies and restrictions were put on moratoriums um, or given amnesty. It's kind of changed the ground and changed the dynamic of what's going on in many of these urban communities that are dealing with large po homeless populations and in particular Skid Row. So at the same time, a tragic thing happened in that General Jeff passed away. So you have a member of the community activist network who is well appreciated and well liked to engage the city about this issue in the past. And he's now gone, which means that for the city to move forward on a project, if they simply don't acknowledge some of what's gone on in the concerns of the city, they're kind of coming across as really rude and tone deaf on the one hand. But on the other hand, it's likely to create a lot of political backlash for them. And as much as you might think I'm doing a little bit of spectral speculation here, Catherine McNenny actually has emails that she's managed to secure from uh, the city that communicate this very fact that they are concerned about creating that kind of a backlash or coming across as politically tone deaf uh, in terms of what to do next. So they have communicated internally through like the Department of Cultural Affairs and the city uh, that perhaps this is not the right project anymore. And they, in fact, according to Catherine McNenny's Medium.com article, she has evidence of emails and exchanges from PowerPoint presentation slides where they were talking about potential new partners for the firehouse. But nothing's been discussed probably since 2021 about who is going to be in that space or what goes on. What seems to have happened at this point is that we've reached the end of phase one. The seismic stability has happened. 
what phase two looks like and what goes back in and goes on the walls and happens and how the building gets designed from there may now be up in the air. And at the same time, the project seems to have faced a series of uh, potential budget shortfalls that are happening. And so money is being integrated and injected in via the general fund uh, from the city in order to pay for it. And interestingly enough, interesting sidebar, the last film project to be filmed inside of that building, obviously, was Ghostbusters Afterlife. Uh, and there's actually been a memo that's been turned up by Catherine McNenny and some of the folks who are lawyers working on behalf of Skid Row activists that a uh, payment was provided from Sony to the city, a donation for the restoration project of the firehouse of about $5,000, uh, which their argument, the activists in Skid Row, is kind of hearkening back to those 1995 payments of, is this a form of quid pro quo? Where the community members can't actually access the resource that's around them, but Sony was able to utilize the firehouse for filming. And that memo actually says in it that Sony is grateful to have been able to feature the firehouse one final time on screen because of the relationship between Ghostbusters and the firehouse. So at this point, Sony expects to be done with the firehouse pretty clearly from the memo they've put out. Uh, but it's an interesting thing to think about that the firehouse is in current limbo. It's why things are the way they are currently is that the firehouse may not be going forward or it may be going forward as something else. And if it does, they're going to have to figure out how they fund it. But Or it may be a situation where they run out the clock between now and 2026. And when they do, uh, maybe they then try to sell the building as surplus. And that would not be unheard of. To be 100% clear, uh, Station 28 is our fire station 28 is actually a restaurant in downtown LA that was once a historic firehouse and the city dealt with it as surplus property by trying to sell it. In fact, the developer who made that restaurant tried to do the same thing with engine 23 in 2009, but was not able to do so because of the ballot initiative. And so that when you look at what's happening with the firehouse today, um, it's important to think about this, that, the firehouse is in a really weird place and it arguably could serve like people in that really weird place if it were open to them. But the way they tried to preserve it was to earmark it alongside youth funding while there's no kids in the area. So what will this look like in the future? I I'm not really sure uh, to be a hundred percent honest with you. What I can tell you is that the firehouse has a long history and that history is one that's kind of rife with political strife. It's rife with um, people trying to make money off of a building. It's historic and it's a community resource. And it's something that I, I hope to see opened up uh, for community access in some way. Even if that's something where they have to redesign and rethink what the plan is and what the project is here. Uh, because while the original Proposition K language sort of suggests that they're supposed to do something for youth, it, it seems that it's kind of become a situation where it doesn't make a lot of sense to keep doing it. And to be real, like this is not cheap. This is a building that has probably had about $12 million spent on it so far. And that has an additional proposed funding amount of like another $5.5 uh, $5 million. Um, so when you look at the original like $1.8 million that was spent in, you know, in terms of inflation, when you look at that $53,000 that's spent on the 
on the building to begin with, um, when they make it, that seemed exorbitant at the time. Now we're talking about probably like $12.5 million that's going to be designated to, to make this building into something else. And to have gone as far as they have already, having spent a lot of funds uh, on all of the work that they've done to, you know, to stabilize the building, to get architectural plans, to do all the things that they've done so far. Um, if they don't finish it, it's kind of like taking money that could have been utilized for a lot of other youth programming and throwing it in the trash. So it's not really clear what's going to happen here. Um, it's, is kind of clear that, you know, the Skid Row community wants something from this that's going to help them. And, this May 19th, 2020 email from Leslie Thomas that's been discovered by uh, Catherine McNetty and the folks who are trying to get access to the firehouse is pretty clear that um, she says in it, we need to discuss this. This is not a good option or a solution to this issue. This no longer needs to take place. Circumstances and conditions have changed and will continue to change for this project. The plans for this project are no longer relevant. Let's try to make a decision that will not result in further personnel and other problems. All right, so... Um, at that point, they put out a list of possible partners that was emailed within the Department of Cultural Affairs, um, a School on Wheels, the Union Rescue Mission, Council District 14, the Skid Row History Museum and Archive, the Skid Row Housing Trust, a variety of others, the Young Musicians Foundation. Uh, but at that point, there was no more communication. There was no more follow-up, and it's not really clear what's going to happen. My concern, 100% real, there are four years left to go on this plan. There's four years left before the Proposition K funding sunsets. Is this running out the clock? Is the city trying to figure out what to do with this building at this point and going, well, if we don't do anything, we can reach a point where maybe we can divest ourselves of it because we didn't finish the project. What's the recourse? Um, I don't really know if there's anything that we as Ghostbusters fans do. And to be honest, I mean, I'll say this. I think that the, we as Ghostbusters fans don't do anything because this is a community fight. And I mean that not in the sense that like you shouldn't support the community as much as like we don't help necessarily, <laughs> you know, um, we, we don't necessarily bring a lot to the table in terms of uh, our sentimental value or our emotional take on how we feel about a building that is a community resource for people who otherwise can't access it um, and who are frustrated about it. But I kind of want to suggest to folks that it's worth going and taking a look at Catherine McNenny's medium.com article on this uh, because it's from October 22nd and it's really in depth about talking about the background on this issue and uh, what's gone on with this. And there's also some great links to these organizations that are um, you know trying to get community access to the firehouse for the long term. And you can find her article on Catherine McNenny with a K. So K-A-T-H-E-R-I-N-E-M-C-N-E-N-N-Y.medium.com. Um, and the article is called Ghostbusters Quid Pro Quo Updated Tales About Skid Row's Infamous Firehouse Number 23, which was earmarked as just in time for Halloween because it was put out the week before. Uh, but I find it kind of fascinating that where we end up being useful for uh, the folks in that particular struggle is that our videos, our photos, the things that we actually post end up being the things that let the community see what's inside the building in their own backyard, um, that they're not able to necessarily 
get access to the building and the activists, the lawyers, the folks who don't necessarily live in Skid Row, but represent the people in that underserved area. Um, they can't get access to the building themselves. So when one of us, uh, you know, one of the, our, our members of our fandom end up getting down there and getting in the building or Adam the Woo ends up uh, accidentally stumbling into the building and somebody lets him in, uh, it actually is what lets the folks in that area see what the condition of the building is so that they can figure out, like, is there a way to utilize it or is there a way, an argument to be made such that we can get this community asset to help us? Um, and, you know, and there's a lot of there's a lot of politics to that. And I don't want to come out as sort of saying like, oh, I'm, you know, think we should absolutely take the firehouse and give it to whoever we want, want to give it to. Uh, there's a lot of different problems in Skid Row and there's a lot of different things that need to be probably considered about how that building could be utilized by people in the environment and keep it safe and secure. But it seems pretty clear that the youth arts program idea is probably done. It's probably something they're going to have to move on from. And it's probably why when you see people who are going and talking uh, with the construction workers who are working on the building and they say, what are you guys building? They're like, oh, well, we think we're working on a fire museum because nobody really knows what it is at this point. And it's probably not a fire museum because they already have one. <laughs> There's definitely not a reason to close it down and move to Skid Row. Uh, so, you know, I it's going to be really interesting to see what the building turns into. Uh, and you can see the photos of what it looks like now uh, out on our social media from here, from Extraplasm. And again, I want to thank Sergio Nava for those because they're incredibly awesome and really cool to see. But I hope that the city that the folks who are stakeholders in Skid Row can work together to find a solution to this and that uh, it doesn't just turn into a project that fails or that is sold off to somebody else who turns it into a private office building or condos or something else that ends up not being a community center. I can't imagine it would be condos in the middle of Skid Row, but you know, there has already been ideas about trying to turn a firehouse like this into uh into a private restaurant, you know? So, it could be a number of other things. If it can be something that helps the community, um, why, why wouldn't it be? Why shouldn't it be? You know, especially because it's a firehouse and that's what every firehouse is. Every firehouse is a place that helps your community. That's why they're so cool. <laughs> like it's why as a kid, you're like fire trucks are loud. Fire trucks are cool. Also they have sliding poles. Also, this is a place of help uh, and a place of support. And so, um, I hope this has been a bit of an interesting history lesson and a little bit of a, even if it's a bit of a minecart of facts and figures, but the firehouse is a place that means a lot to us in our hearts um, because it's a place where a lot of our dreams, a lot of our hopes, a lot of our inspirations took place. Uh, and for me, I hope that the firehouse can be rebuilt, uh, put back together and serve to be a good place of hope and inspiration for people in a community uh, because it's an outstanding cultural resource. It's not just one for us because we care about it as a fandom uh, or I guess for deep diehard people who are into big trouble in little China or the mask, <laughs> but um, it's a cultural resource that the people of Los Angeles paid for and are paying for again and again. And they're continuing to pay for with their tax dollars. And I would hope that we can see it opened up to benefit everybody who's been helping to try and keep it alive, even if they don't know they are with the money that they're putting into it. So um, that being said, usually we don't get very, very political on this podcast and I hope I didn't get too political this week, but I hope that the building gets restored back to uh, the point that it was before they took it apart. 
that we see some of that green and white tile back in the garage and that in the future there is some hope and some uh, heroism that can go on in that space again. As a final thing I want to add here, for those of you who've listened this far into this podcast episode and have been thinking, oh my God, they may never put the firehouse back together. How are we ever going to see the Ghostbusters inside ever again? Fear not. The entire interior of that building, as I understand it, has been 3D scanned by Sony such that they can recreate it uh, wherever they need to. And that's part of why the memo that they wrote in which they said they were happy to feature it one last time was probably very true. They expected it to be a youth art center. They expected it to become something else uh, and didn't think they'd ever be able to film in there again. And having the Ecto-1 in there for afterlife and having Ernie Hudson in there and having the containment unit in the actual basement there was probably uh, the last time that's ever going to happen. And they probably knew it at the time. So it was really cool that they were able to connect that tissue and uh, bring the firehouse into afterlife in that after credit sequence. But you're probably never going to be in there again, for real, uh, for the movies. And that's okay. They will reconstruct that set however they need to. If we've learned anything from afterlife, it's that they can literally build a house outside, take it down and rebuild it piece by piece inside. And it looks exactly the same. <laughs> so that's exactly what they did with that, with the farmhouse in Canada. And they literally drove it across a, a border and brought it to the United States to set it up in a soundstage. So I think about this a lot that the firehouse has a lot of sentimentality to me. And I want that connective tissue of going and touching a wall and having my tactile moment moment there. But if I never get it, our narrative, our story, our universe is safe. It's the people in that environment who aren't and who I hope are able to access the community resources that are available to them in the future. So I hope this has been an interesting discussion for you. If nothing else, make sure you check out Sergio Nava's photos uh, because they're really awesome and they are really eye-opening on what the building looks like upstairs because you really haven't seen it in many years. So if you have any questions, if you have any comments, you want to reach out, feel free to hit me at extraplasm on Instagram or Twitter or extraplasmpodcast at gmail.com. And we'll talk to you again on the next Spectral Speculation. Thanks for joining Extraplasm this week, and I hope you found out something exciting about the Ghostbusters Firehouse that you might not have thought as the most primary one before, but is without question the most primary location where most things happened. As we close out this episode, episode 10, I want to say thank you for listening to this podcast, for getting us to episode 10, because to be quite frank, uh, you don't really make it to 10 episodes of a podcast unless you feel like people out there are listening to it. And it, it has been fantastic over the last 10 episodes to hear from you, to get your ideas, to get your feedback. Keep sending that along. Keep engaging. If I haven't answered you in the last week, it's not because I've been ghosting you. It's just because life was crazy. Uh, and so if I missed your message, feel free to send me another one. I know there were a couple people who messaged me and I just wasn't able to get back to them. So, uh, but thank you for your support. Thanks for being involved in this podcast. As always, your support is appreciated. Uh, if you want to leave a like or a subscribe wherever you can about this podcast on Apple podcasts, on Spotify, wherever, uh, it always helps to connect the podcast with other people. And we'll see you again, hopefully next week. I may say hopefully because I managed to miss one week and now I'm worried that somehow I'll do that again. But in all seriousness, we should be back next week for another episode. Thanks for being here. And as Ernie Hudson would say, try to have fun and always keep on busting. Take care.